Last week we started a series titled The Hearts of Kings. And we're going to be studying Saul and David over the next, um, really as long as the Lord leads. It will be a lengthy study. But I want to reiterate what I started with last week, and that is the reality that God desires that each of us, as His children, mature into the place of kings and queens of God. Uh, that there is an authority that we should each live and walk in. That as sons and daughters of the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that as His children we are royalty. And there is a way in which the child of God should walk. There is a way in which the church should be. We should be a victorious body of people uh, over sin, sickness, death, pain, and struggles even through all of it, Paul said in Romans chapter 8, we are to be more than conquerors. And what I hope to do is, is, for lack of a better way to state it, is stir up the inner king in each and every one of us. That as a child of God, you should embrace the mentality that I will not accept defeat. I will not accept anything less than what God has destined me to have. And you, my brother or sister this morning, you have been destined to reign with Christ. And we as God's people should, in this fallen, broken down, and messed up world, we should live lives whereby the rest of the world could look in on our lives, look at our our hearts, our attitude, the way that we live, the way that we operate, and say that that man, that woman, has the divine intervention of God in their life. We are kings and queens of the Most High. So there's a lot that we can learn about how do you develop this king in you? How do you tame the king in you? There's something in all of us that we like to reign and rule. We like to be conquerors. We like to be the boss. But being a king in God's kingdom means that we operate different than the rest of the world. Jesus said that my kingdom doesn't work like everybody else's. He said, in, every, in, the, in the kingdom of this world, those who have authority lord it over everyone else. He said, not so in my kingdom. If you want to be great, you have to become a servant. If you want to be first, you have to be willing to come last. If you want to live, you have to be willing to die. If you want to be exalted, you must bear a cross. And so we've started looking at the lives of Israel's first two kings because there's a lot we can learn about how God wants us to live, about how He wants us not to live, based upon the study of God's kings. Last week, we looked at the rise of Saul. If you missed it and you want to be part of this series, it's right out there on the CD board. The Heart of Kings, Part 1, The Rise of Saul. Take it and listen to it. It will get you up to speed. We saw last week Israel wanted a king. And they came to Samuel, who was Israel's prophet, and they said, Samuel, bring us a king. And Samuel went to the Lord and through the process of, of, of all of that, they got a king. And last week, when we finished, King Saul had it all going. He had everything that a person could want going in his favor. He was chosen by God in an incredibly honoring position. He had a strong body. He was a physical man. He was a, 
The Bible says that he was a head taller than everybody else in Israel, so he had that persona of a king. He had a new heart that God had given him in chapter 10 and verse 9. And then in chapter 10 and verse 10, he was endued with spiritual power as the Spirit of God came upon him. He had loyal friends. He had everything that you would think would make a man successful. But what we must learn about being sons and daughters in the kingdom of God, about having a role to play in the building of God's kingdom, is that God's kingdom works by different rules than the rest of this world. God uses the humble. He does not use the proud. God uses those who are willing to set aside all of their rights and all of their strengths and just depend upon God. And you will begin to see today, this is where Saul failed miserably. I want to work through 13, 14, and 15, so um, I'll tell our uh, sound booth guy the same thing as last week. Rather than trying to follow me, um, I'll just read the passage. If you have your Bible, I'll tell you where I'm at. You, you can follow me. But in verse 1 of chapter 13, it tells us that Saul reigned for one year. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, that he chose some men and began to start his army. In verse 3, Jonathan begins to attack the Philistines. Now, in verse 8, Saul has come together and he is ready to go to war. And before he does this, he, he wants to have the proper sacrifice. And look with me at verse 8. Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. Now, Samuel had told Saul, we find it in 10.8, that he would wait in Gilgal for seven days. Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. Now, look at verse 9. So Saul said, Bring a burnt offering and peace offering here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. As we study the life of Saul and eventually the life of David, what you're going to find is that nobody's life unravels overnight. It is a slow process. And we're beginning to see the unraveling of Saul's life. Saul said, well, I don't know where Samuel is. Now, let me tell you who Samuel was. It's important to understand. At a time when Israel... that desperately needed somebody with integrity. Eli was dying. Eli's sons were wicked sons. And if you know the story, Hannah wanted a son and she uh, did not have one. And she prayed to the Lord and said, God, if you'll give me a son, I'll give him back to you. And on comes the scene of Samuel into the life of Israel's history. And Samuel, from a young boy... Most commentators, and I myself believe he was about four years old, when Samuel was left the home and began living in the temple. And if you read the beginning of Samuel, you'll find that even from a young boy, Samuel had an ephod. He wore, as a young lad, he wore the priest's garments. And he did the work of the priest. And he grew up and he matured in that. And eventually, even as more than likely he was a young teenager, God came to Samuel. And he said, Samuel, you go to Eli. Now, Eli was Samuel's mentor. And you pronounce judgment on him. Because he has not restrained his sons. His sons are wicked. 
it, the priesthood has been defiled. And Samuel, as a young lad, comes. He pronounces judgment. God does exactly what God said He would do. Samuel maintains his uh, status as the priest and the prophet of Israel. Samuel's life is the life where before Samuel, God spoke to the people of Israel through the priesthood. After Samuel, it was through the prophets. And Samuel was both. He was priest and prophet. He was, he was a transferring from that priesthood to the prophet. Samuel was Israel's leader. He was qualified to be the priest. Now look what Saul does. Saul says, well, I'm not real sure where Samuel is, so I'll just do his job for him. I'll do the sacrifice. Let's just do it how I want to do it. And you'll see this about the life of King Saul. Saul began to think that because he was king, he could live any way that he wanted to live. Saul began to think that because there was nobody over him but God, that he had free reign to do what he wanted to do. If you read earlier in uh, what we looked at last week, the Spirit of God came upon Saul and he did prophesy. No doubt Saul thought to himself, oh, the Spirit of God has come upon me and God has anointed me king. And, you know, Samuel, he's just a prophet. I can do what he does. It's just an offering. How hard is it to do that? And, and, and Saul began to diminish the holiness of the ministry. Saul began to think of himself higher than he ought to have thought of himself. In verse 13, here's Samuel's response. Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which He commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for Himself a man after His own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. It would be years before this would actually be fulfilled. But here is the first pronouncement. Saul, your kingdom, it's not going to work. Listen, I want you to get the personal application to your own life. God has destined you to be great. God has an amazing plan and will for every single person's life under the sound of my voice. Every one of you, God has a plan for your life. But the Bible tells us God's looking for a man after his own heart. This is a man who desires to do what God wants to do. This is a man who desires to be part of God's kingdom so he can further God's agenda. Unlike Saul who quickly turned, and the only thing he wanted to be part of God's kingdom for was what he could get out of it. Would you agree with me this morning that in large part, the message going forth to the Christian church, especially in America, is that it's all about you. Is that you ought to become part of God's kingdom because He'll make you rich, He'll make you healthy, He'll make you have everything you want, He'll take away all your sorrows. You have to understand the reason God wants you to be a king. The reason God called Saul. The reason God called David. It is to further God's agenda, not your own personal, small, earthly agenda. We have a purpose to build the kingdom of God, not our own small, earthly kingdoms. 
And God begins to reject. This is the first pronouncement of Saul's, of God rejecting Saul as a king. But what we're going to find is that Saul doesn't really care. Saul does what so many people do. He thinks, well, I've got everybody fooled, so I'll just keep going my way. Nobody really knows but me and Samuel and God. So I'm going to continue to reign. I'm going to continue to rule. And he begins to do it in the power of his own strength. In chapter 14, Saul, as king, begins to attack the Philistines. And in verse 24, we begin to see this kind of psychotic nature of Saul. And the men of Israel were distressed that day. Now, these were the men of Israel who were fighting. For Saul had placed the people under an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until the evening, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. The Bible tells us that Saul and his men began their attack early in the morning. The only way this is possible is that they marched through the night, which is a very common battle strategy. March through the night as soon as the sunlight comes up and everybody's still uh, kind of camping and the enemy's waiting to get up and around, then you attack and destroy. Well, not only had these men marched all night, but Saul gave orders that nobody gets to eat anything. Now listen, that is a pretty dumb order to a bunch of men who are fighting in battle. There is a time and a place for fasting. There is a time and a place for pushing away the plate, depending on the supernatural power of God. But it's not when thousands of men are in the act of battle and they need strength to yield the sword. We begin to see Saul just kind of making really stupid what I would call um, unthoughtful, just flippant decisions. Because he's the king. He can do what he wants. you got to listen to him. No prayer whatsoever. No seeking Samuel, God's man, this man who is, has shown himself trustworthy as the prophet of God for years now. Possibly as many as 60 years. He doesn't seek Samuel. He doesn't need any help. He's Saul. This is the danger that every one of us face when we begin to understand the grace of God and the reality that God has given us the freedom to make our own choices. Sure, you can make your own choice. Yes, you can. But our choices have consequences. And we must understand, if we're going to be about God's business, we need to be men and women of prayer. Men and women who seek God for wisdom. We need some husbands who will seek God for the wisdom on how to be spiritual leaders in their home. And not just make flippant decisions. Well, I'm the man. Yes, you are. You are the man. So was Saul. And his kingdom was ripped right from his hands. And his family was destroyed and his life spiraled out of control. What's that have to do with anything, sir? We need dads and moms who will pray about God. Give us wisdom to be parents. God, help us to be led by you in everything that we do and say. 
Let us not be so foolish in thinking we don't need any help whatsoever from heaven. That we see everything that God sees and that we don't need to turn our ear His way and ask Him if there's anything we need to be aware of. This was the, the, the heart and attitude of Saul. And amazingly, it happened like this. I mean, just last week, just a couple chapters ago, here we have this humble man who doesn't even want to go tell his family that God has anointed him king. This humble man who's, who's working in the field and something happened in Saul. His heart was not ready for the kingdom. But he says, nobody can eat food and anybody that does is going to die. Now in verse 25... Actually, I want you to look at two words in verse 24 also. We begin to see this about Saul. He said, Curse is any man who eats any food before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. Not until we have taken vengeance on our enemies. Saul's life became very self-centered. All about him. It's a dangerous place for a king to be who's leading God's people. Now all the people of the land came to the forest and there was honey on the ground. There was something for them there to eat. But when the people had come into the woods, no one put his hand to his mouth for the people feared the oath. Now look at the foolishness of Saul. Verse 27, but Jonathan, Jonathan is Saul's son. Jonathan had not heard of the, the, the charge of his father. And therefore he stretched out the end of his rod and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his countenance brightened. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, Curse is the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. You see, Saul's in a predicament now. If he's going to be true as king, now he's got to kill his own son. Because he said, curse is the man that eats anything on this day. Well, the news didn't get to his son because his son, like a valiant man, was out in battle. And the news didn't get to him yet. He didn't know. But Saul made no provisions for accidents. Saul made no provisions for, in the event, something like this happened. And Saul finds himself in a position where if he's going to be honest to his own word, now he's got to kill his own son. Can I tell you, if we're not careful about the things that we do and we don't seek God for wisdom, we'll find ourselves in some of the most terrible predicaments. If you think, sir, if you think, ma'am, you can just go about your business, do whatever you want, make decisions, and God has to bless it, you are fooling yourself. You will find yourself in a dangerous situation and at times your children will suffer because of your poor, cons- your poor choices when we don't seek God for wisdom in everything that we do. And in verse 29, Jonathan begins seeing his own father's foolishness. Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. Look now how my countenance is brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. He said, I've got something in my stomach. It gave me energy. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found. 
For now, would there not have been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines? Jonathan begins seeing his own father's foolishness. I want you to see the people that are being controlled by this king in verse 32 and 33. The people rushed on the spoil and took sheep, oxen, and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, saying, Look, the people were sinning against the Lord by eating with blood. So he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a large stone to me this day. You'd think Saul would learn from this mess, but he doesn't. I'm telling you, Saul's life is just getting ramped up to be one of the worst stories ever in the Bible. But I want you to see the people. These soldiers were so incredibly starving that the moment the enemy was destroyed, they just cut open their cattle and everything and started eating raw meat which was against their practices, against their spiritual laws, laid down for them not to eat meat while it still had the blood in it. They were that hungry. They were that starving. What is Saul thinking? Right now his son's supposed to die because of his absolute absurd notion that nobody in the entire army of Israel can eat anything until Saul, I, have killed his own personal, my enemies. Everybody's starving. His son didn't know better, so he ate. Now he's supposed to die. This is what happens when we just think we can do whatever we want without God's leading. This is what happens when husbands think, I can just do whatever I want with my family. She's the wife and she has to like it. This is what happens when Parents think they can just parent any way that they want to, regardless of what the Bible says, regardless of God's commands towards the thing. This is what happens when in any area of our life, we know what God has commanded, but we don't care and we don't listen. And we just go about our own way, thinking that really we don't need God's guidance and direction. In verse 44, Saul answers concerning the situation with Jonathan. He says, you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. Jonathan was rescued from the wrath of his father by the people of Israel. Saul's kingdom is not starting out so hot. Saul's fatherhood is starting to fall from beneath his own feet. And in chapter 15, which is where I really wanted to get this morning, we see the ultimate downfall of Saul. In chapter 15, verse 1, Samuel comes to Saul and and said, "...the Lord sent me to anoint you king over Israel, over his people. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord." Thus says the Lord of hosts. I want you to understand why chapter 15 is the ultimate downfall of Saul. He has been hasty so far in dealing with the commands of God. He has been foolish in his dealings with God's people and his army. But now, directly, 
the Word of God comes to Saul. God sends Samuel and says, Saul, God has a specific task for you, Saul. He says, I will punish Amalek for what he did. How he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. And do not spare them, but kill both man, woman, infant, and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. I want to deal with verse 3. It is, without question, one of the most difficult topics to deal with, but I don't want to just skirt it while everybody's wondering. Why would God tell Saul to go and kill everything? Man, woman, infant. Infant, that's what it says. And this properly interpreted infant. And all of the livestock. You have to understand something, first of all, about these people. These people were absolutely, utterly wicked. This was a group of people who had open prostitution, who had open homosexuality, who openly sacrificed their own children to demons. History records it. The Bible records it in many different instances. Some of the sacrificing of their children included burning them alive in the fire. I mean, these were an utterly wicked group of people. That's number one. Number two, and I know I'm talking about some difficult theological concepts. But I'm going to give it to you the best I possibly know how. Number two, it is impossible to truly and righteously judge wickedness. The wickedness of this world without causing casualties to those who are born into the family of the wicked. It happens. Child death is terrible no matter how you look at it. Now, I want to pose the question this way. What's better? Do you let the children be burned alive by their own parents? Or do you slaughter them? Tough question to ask. The other thought is this. Is it really more honorable to kill all of these wicked, evil men? To kill them off, to kill all of the and the evil, wicked women, the, the adults who are part of this community that are entrenched in devil worship, in demonic uh, contact, in child sacrifice. Is it really better to kill off all of those and then leave their children behind to starve to death? No, it's not. Is it better to let the children continue to grow up, as what most of us would think, and then take on the evil nature and the evil desires of their parents, and then die of an old age and spend forever in hell? No. In a way that's very difficult to understand, when you look at eternity, when you look at forever and ever, 
out of all of the options that these young children had. Having their life cut short and being placed into an eternity in heaven forever is the best option. But there is no easy way to deal with wickedness. There is no easy way to deal with sin. And the sins of parents have a tremendous effect on their children. Now that is the best in a nutshell without spending an entire sermon and developing those thoughts that I can tell you why God said what He said. But the fact remains, that was the command. This was God's command to Saul. And what we find is that Saul refuses it. In verse 8, or excuse me, verse 9, let's just look at verse 7. So Saul attacked the Amalekites, as God had told him to do, from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also attacked Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people, they spared Agag, the king, and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Saul could not resist capturing their king and bringing home the best of everything to march it in front of the people of Israel to exalt himself. Saul thought to himself, how much more glorious it would it be if I captured their king, killed everybody but the king, and bring him back a slave. And then I'll bring in all of their wealth. God told him to destroy it all. But we see Saul has become a man who doesn't really care what God has to say. Saul has become a man. Though God anointed him king, though God had sent Samuel to pour the oil on Saul's head and anoint him as king over Israel, Saul switched and began to think he did not need the leading of God, that he was above God's directions, that he knew better than God himself knew. Saul wanted to exalt himself in the eyes of Israel. Here's the lesson, talking about building the king and queen in each of us. Why did Saul want to exalt himself in the eyes of Israel? You would think being king would be enough, wouldn't you? Listen to the preacher this morning. The flesh will never, never be satisfied. I pray that that statement sinks deep in somebody's soul. The flesh refuses to be satisfied. You think, if I just had one more thing, then I would change course. Then I would get about God's business and, and, and be totally devoted and all in. No, you wouldn't. Because you'll get that one thing and you'll want more. Being king won't be enough. The flesh is never satisfied. And we see the flesh of Saul run wild. Eventually, Saul comes to the place where he's going to kill everybody that gets in his way. Whether they've done right or wrong, he's going to destroy them. He's going to protect his honor 
in His name to the bitter end. And look what happens in verse 12. Saul went to Carmel and indeed, he set up a monument for himself. You ever seen that about Saul? The man hasn't even been reigning that long. You'd think he'd been king for 60 years and had triumphed over all the lands and was some great, victorious, awesome king that the world had never known. No. Not so. He's just beginning his reign. He's been incredibly rebellious so far. But he sets up a monument to himself. Not to the Lord. Not to God. Not to the Jehovah God who brought him up out of nowhere and placed him there in that kingdom. He sets up a monument to himself. It's possible for us to turn inward, folks. It can happen to the best of us. We must be honest with ourselves and check our hearts and ask ourselves, God, why are we doing what we're doing? Is it about us? Is it about me? Is it about Crossway Church? Is it about I'm the man? Is it about this is my right? Why do we do what we do? And any time that our heart is not directed and consumed with bringing God honor and glory and building the kingdom of God, something in us has gone amiss and something in us needs to be turned back the way it was meant to go. And if we don't turn it back, danger lurks ahead. Saul has set up a monument for himself. He has already become grossly self-centered and near psychotic. So in verse 13, Samuel went to Saul and Saul said to him, I want you to look what Saul says, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Sure you have, Saul. This is, this is what happens. Some of you are going to tell on yourself right now. This is what happens with people who are typically rebellious to God and who are half-hearted, who are one day in, one day out, who act spiritual here at church and then walk out the doors and act a different way in the workplace and around their families and everything else and when they're in the secret uh, corners of their life. Guilt begins to override them, and so when they get around spiritual people, they just act overly spiritual. And you can almost always see straight through it. I mean, imagine what Samuel was thinking here. Oh, you have? Wow, Saul, we've known each other now for three years. You've never greeted me with, blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandments of God. Hmm. Something's a little off. Got a guilty conscience, Saul? You know what we see about Saul? Saul was concerned with what everybody thought about him. Saul wanted everybody to think he was great. Ultimately, it is the real downfall of Saul. It's why he brought back Agag. It's why he brought back the best of everything. He wanted everybody to think he was great. He wanted Samuel to think he was deeply spiritual. He wanted the people to think he was the greatest king they'd ever had. And he would begin to spend the rest of his life destroying everybody that threatened that. So he says to Samuel, Oh, I've done what God told me to do. Samuel says in verse 14, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, they, notice it's not I, 
No longer is it he, it's they. They have brought them from the Amalekites for the people, not me, spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have utterly destroyed. I want you to notice in verse 15, he also says the same thing in verse 21, the Lord your God. All of a sudden, he wasn't the Lord my God. Deep in Saul's heart, he knew. He wasn't committed to God like Samuel was. He wasn't sold out to the commands of God like Samuel. He knew. And he says, the people did it, but they did it to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Then Samuel said to Saul, be quiet. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. When you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? One of the most difficult things about learning to progress in spiritual matters and becoming a great spiritual man or woman of God is learning how to stay little in your own eyes. It is so difficult. Our flesh longs to be exalted. Every one of us instinctively have a desire within to be thought of as great by other people. But we have to stay little in our own eyes. Don't ever forget who you were without God and who you are without God. Don't ever forget it. Stay little in your own eyes. We need to have a victorious attitude because we are kings and queens of God. Because of Christ in me. But we need to be able to say in the same breath, I am nothing without Christ. The life that I live, I now live in Christ. When you were little in your eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. You know what a narcissist will do? That's a big word. I don't have time to explain it. But you know what a narcissist will do? That's what Paul was. He refused to take responsibility for anything in his life. He always had to do what he does, or she has to do what she does because of what everyone else did. No responsibility whatsoever. I've never did anything wrong. This is Saul. 
He said, I did destroy the Amalekites. Technically, he didn't say anything about the king, right? And that word Amalekites, Samuel, it really deals with the people, and the people are dead. And as far as the sheep and oxen, I didn't do anything about that. The people brought them back because they wanted to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. I am clean. God sees straight through it. God deals with it. It is a dangerous place to be when you refuse to acknowledge that you have done anything wrong. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. Saul said in verse 20, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I sure hope this morning that you can hear the preacher. Obedience doesn't count if it's 50%. That's not obedience. In reality, if you look at the situation, Saul did what made sense to Saul. Sure, kill my enemies, but... I don't really agree with not bringing the king home and trading him in front of the people. And I don't really agree with killing off all the the best of their cattle and oxen. I mean, we could do a lot with that. And so I'm going to obey God to the extent that makes sense to me and to to, to the amount that I feel like doing. But the stuff I disagree with, I'll just do it my own way. And then I'm still going to say that I obeyed God. Can I say, frankly, I'm in overtime right now, but I'm just going to finish this sermon this morning. Can I say, frankly, this attitude of Saul has taken over the American church. People want to live any way they want to live, sin when they want to sin, fornicate when they want to fornicate, cuss when they want to cuss, thieve when they want to thieve, cut down when they want to cut down, and then still on one side of their mouth, claim they're obedient to God because they're a Christian. That devilish, double-minded, wicked life will be judged. And if that's you this morning, you need to repent and run to God with your whole heart and quit living and deceiving yourself as Saul was into thinking that somehow you can stand righteously and clean before God. The Bible says without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That word holiness is something we want to do away with in the modern day culture. We call it legalism. If choosing not to fornicate is legalism, then yes, call me legalistic. If choosing to follow God and obey God is legalism, then fine, call me legalist. I don't care. You call it what you want. 
Most people just use that term when they don't want to do what the Bible tells them to do. And the average Christian doesn't know how to do anything with it. So we back down and back away. Saul deceived himself into thinking he was obedient to God. And he had enough self-deception and wickedness in his heart to look God's man right in the face and say, Oh, I've obeyed the Lord. I've seen my fair share of them. Live one way out in the world. Act different around their friends, their family, their people at work. Cuss like sailors. Live lives that are totally inconsistent with what the Word of God tells us to live. And then want to show up and tell me they really have a deep love for God. You're not fooling me. I sure hope you're not fooling yourself. But more importantly than that, you're not fooling God. Notice the Word of God says to obey is better than sacrifice. You can't pay off your disobedience. You can't pay it off with church attendance. You can't pay it off with tithe. You can't pay it off by helping out in missions or by being nice to the neighbor lady down the street. All those are good things we should do. But you cannot pay off your disobedience. The only option is to repent of it and serve God with all of your heart. Look what verse 23 says. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Witchcraft. That is demon worship. That is contacting the devilish forces of this world and connecting with them to wreak havoc on the work of God. Now, nobody in this place, hopefully nobody in this place, would in any way ever want to be associated with witchcraft. God said, your disobedience is as unto me the same as witchcraft. Stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. You see, we become a stubborn people. There are some people right now, under the sound of my voice, you're mad. You're mad and you're thinking to yourself, who's that preacher to tell me anything? And you're even madder because I said what I said and you're sitting next to somebody that knows it's hitting right home. But you're so stubborn you won't do anything about it. You're so stubborn that you'll dig your heels in and say, I refuse to change. How long will you hold on to your stubbornness? How long will you really believe that your way is greater than God's? How long will you really think you know better than God Himself? How long will you be self-deceived into thinking that somehow your choices and your stubbornness are actually going to result in your benefit? They don't. They never do. Most of the time, not even temporarily. And so we finally have the rejection of God. Look what he says. Because you have rejected the Word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. Our actions do have consequences. Never make the mistake of thinking that just because God is gracious and because God is merciful, that He is then lazy and unwilling to punish your sins. 
Those who argue they can continue in their sins because of God's grace foolishly argue that God has made it easier for you to sin. And in making that argument, you say that God is an accomplice to evil. He will never be an accomplice to evil. He came to pull us out of sin. He came to deliver us from sin. And this morning, He is still the same delivering God. But because you have rejected the Word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from King. Notice, I'm done. I'll ask our worship team to come. In thirteen, in verse 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 13, Samuel said to Saul, look at the very last sentence, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. God would have established His kingdom. You need to understand, Saul was not destined to fail. Saul was destined to reign. But he refused to do it God's way. And I don't care if you are the great King Saul yourself. I don't care if you are king over all of Israel and you're the first king that Israel's ever known and you are the man that they cried out, God, send us this man and you showed up on the scene. If you turn against the commands of God, God will break you and none of us are above God. None of us. Not a single one of us. God pronounced judgment on Saul. Now, God has destined you to reign as a king, as a queen, as a child, a son, a daughter of God. Brothers and sisters, before we can do it, we've got to be willing to get our hearts where our hearts need to be. Next week, we see God says, I'll raise up another king. Next week, we're going to see David step onto the scene and we're going to watch the lives of Saul and David begin to intermingle. And we're going to see that God would spend years taking the Saul out of David so that David wouldn't reign the same way that Saul did. I'm here to tell you this morning, there's a little bit of Saul in every one of us. In me. In me. In you. Let us learn from it. Let us be willing to be honest. Let us not be stubborn and justify our sins. Let us not be like Saul and, and, and falsely say we did everything right if we have not. But let us run and repent and know that ultimately God's way is better and He has a plan for our lives. Father, I pray that you move all across this room in Jesus' name. So you thought you had to keep this up. All the world.